Welcome to the Pain of Scale, the Notion Podcast. Hi, and I'm with Steve. Hi, Stephen. How are you? Yeah, I'm good, Paul. And you? Very good. Who do we have today with us? We're very lucky to have Dave Peterson from Play Bigger. A kind of global leader in category thinking. Hi, Dave. Hi, it's good to be here, and thanks for having me on the podcast. So, Stephen, you mentioned category thinking. So, can you let us know and what is for you? What does it mean to think about category? So, any technology company that is, in particular, if they're, if they're taking money from venture capital, needs to be thinking about how they are going to dominate a category at scale. The fundamental challenge they have is that invariably they're solving a problem that hasn't existed before. So they're selling into a market that doesn't know what they're selling. And so it's incumbent upon them to really think from the very beginning about, well, first, the problem they're solving and, and why it's just really important to solve and incredibly valuable to do so. But importantly, what that is going to be at scale, and then think about how they're going to dominate and own that category. And that's a common theme across all of our portfolio. And so, Dave, are you a category leader yourself? I would hope so. Uh, so <laughs> and uh, to kind of echo Stephen's thoughts is we get asked a lot, you know, what is a category? Because it's sort of the invisible player around the table. Every company that we have ever worked with or we've all enjoyed, you know, you, you can feel the company. Sometimes you can even see the company if it's a retailer or brick and mortar. Often you can get your hands on the products or experience the products, but it's, it's hard to explain sometimes what the category actually is. Yet it exists, you know, there would be actually no product or company without that category. And the way we like to look at it is category is sort of this, imagine the, the container for the problem that you're solving. One of the examples we use here in California a lot is uh, in the winter month, a lot of people try to get up to the mountains to go ski. And one of the more common questions you get is, you know, what's a safe type of vehicle to get from, you know, San Francisco up to Tahoe? And the answer is always an SUV or a sports utility vehicle. That's the category. You know, it solves the problem on how to get through inclement weather. The answer was not a particular brand or a particular type of SUV. It was a category in which then all the companies and all the brands and all the products live under. It's always an interesting discussion when you get into this sort of uh, notion of what is category and why is it important. But is that something you were thinking since the start? I mean, if you look back at your own experience, were you thinking about something such as category or maybe you were implying it but never expressed it out loud? Or do you think that companies nowadays just start out and know what a category is and then they will actually hunt for that solar stone? Yeah, yeah, I, I, it's, a, it's a great question because I think, well, in fact, we know unless you're explicit in most cases with people what the category actually is, there's a decent chance that people won't understand it. And uh, we go all the way back to the core premise of what every entrepreneur starts with, which is sort of this hunch or this insight. Our, our friend Ann Mirko over at Floodgate has coined this moment as sort of this magic insight that either creates a technology insight or a, a market insight that leads to a category. And, and ultimately, it's that itch inside of an entrepreneur that says, there's this giant problem. <laughs> and if people would just understand that that problem is there, you know, they would accept a new answer or a new product, a different way to solve that problem. And we always joke that dark ages of category design were prior to when we published our book uh, in 2016. You know, we were trying to explain to people that category strategy and category design matter. 
Yet it was very difficult, right? Because again, it's hard to see. It's a hard thing to put in the spreadsheet. It's a hard thing to track milestones against. It's a, you know, uh, much easier to track revenue in a company or milestones and, and agile drops in a product. And it's a, it's a state of mind to believe in order for my product to have relevance, it needs a category in which people believe is important in their lives, urgent in their lives, or highly valuable. And I think from our perspective, you know, every company that we're investing in is, is solving a problem that many organizations don't know that they have. So the first thing they've got to do is prove this is a problem we're solving. And then when they start to think that it really is, They've got to start to think longer term about, well, okay, what is that going to be as a category? Because if I don't own it, create it, define it, dominate it, somebody else will. But at what point do you start really thinking about that? Because although you might be thinking that you are category defining what you aspire to be category defining at the very beginning of your startup journey, it's only really at kind of the grow up stage that you can start owning it. So at what time... Do you start expressing that like really explicitly, not only to your team, of course, which you might have done since the start, but to external stakeholders, including VCs, Dave? At what time did you start maybe yourself really started realizing that you were defining a category that it was actually important to talk about? Was it since the start because you were like, oh, let's do it. That's our North Star. Or was it something that came later at a grow up stage? Yeah, it's a great question. And it sort of reminds me of the conversations that uh, we were having with Stephen around this kind of three big phases of companies, as, as, as the Notion team will tell you, start up, grow up, scale up. And categories form along the same sort of evolution. There's a design phase, a develop phase, and a dominate phase. And from all the research we've done, a category, whether in consumer or even enterprise, can take anywhere from, you could argue, four to 10 years to develop and to really be fully formed. And the category evolves in different stages along that journey. And uh, the way we always like to uh, look at it and, uh, you know, and help entrepreneurs kind of think about when should you start thinking about category, you know, it's the same starting point as when you should start thinking about your company and when you should start thinking about your products. And as Stephen just mentioned, the problem that you're solving with your product is ultimately the proxy for the category. You know, the root and the foundation of the category is based on the problem. Just like code is the baseline for your product, if it's a technology product, and just like people are the baseline for your company. And if you have a problem that you're going to solve with that product, or you have a problem that you're going to solve with an army of people that you're going to hire and build a company around, that problem exists, then you actually have a category. And that category starts, that same journey starts the day you uh, decide to build that company, the day you start decide to start coding up or building your first product. They're all on the same starting point and they all evolve in slightly different uh, phases, but they all move together. Uh, we call this the magic triangle and we believe category, company, and product all are joined together and they kind of drive each other like a flywheel. I don't know how you think about it, Dave, but I, I, I look at this certainly with the earlier stage in the startup phase and say, you, you need to be thinking about this. We might not be manifesting it externally, you know, we might not be talking about the category to, to our customers because at this stage we're still educating, but we're thinking about it internally and we're thinking about how are we going to, as you say, you know, really go through that process of design and development and dominating. But perhaps the, the extent to which we externalize that changes over time. That's right. I, and I think about, to make this a little more grounded, right, if you speak to an entrepreneur 
and they are often, at least I can pick on the entrepreneurs here in the, in the Silicon Valley, very quick to show you the answer, which is generally a product and say, look at this great product. And often people get pretty enamored with a new bright, shiny object called a product. And, and they almost <laughs> yeah. stop to ask, forget to ask, well, what problem does that product solve? And we kind of call this the gadget effect. You might have a great gadget, and people can often adopt that gadget and say, well, that's pretty cool. But cool does not equal category, right? Uh, <laughs> and, and so to Stephen's point, if you go back and look at those early stages of a company, often all you have is your dream, maybe a PowerPoint, and a lot of enthusiasm to try to either convince a co-founder to join you, to try to convince an early stage investor to give you some, uh, to place a bet on you. That's all you have. You're holding nothing in your hand, except your hands are waving and saying, hey, there's this new problem out here and I can solve it. And you know, a, a great example is uh, what happened in the ride sharing category, right? People, you know, you're standing there in the rain, watching taxi cabs fly by, thinking there has to be a, a different way to solve this problem. From that comes ride sharing and Uber and Lyft. And that problem, you can share at its most emotional level in the early stages. And then ultimately, as your product evolves, as your company evolves, you can get more granular about how specifically you're solving that problem with your product or your, uh, with your company. But uh, ultimately, you know, it's that, it's that hand-waving, it's that angst you have in, in the earliest stages of being an entrepreneur that is, uh, you know, everybody has a right to talk about that problem. And that problem is almost in every case, a proxy for the category. You gave me a great example by talking about ride sharing and in the US, Lyft versus Uber, meaning in that example, there are at least two companies within the category and they almost co-define that category. So meaning, do you have to be single-handedly defining a category to be winning or can you also, if you're sitting in the startup in the early stages of your company, if you're sensing a category being created in front of your eyes, also participating and maybe still dominate, although you might have not been the first one to think about it? Yes. And actually, first mover advantage is a bit of a, again, another false positive or another uh, myth, I think. And I think it made sense. First mover may have made sense back in the days where it did take $5 million to build a company where you had to buy your own servers and you had to build every single thing that you can just plug and play and get yeah. almost instantly <laughs> today. And so therefore, first mover might have meant, you know, it will take somebody five years to enter the market. But today it takes people 15 minutes to enter our market and, uh, and start to participate. And so often first in does not mean, does not equal the win. And that's been proven time and time again. You know, Yahoo opened the door to search Google close the door with the category of search advertising. I have very good friends that open the door to the notion of a social network through companies like Tribe and Friendster, and Facebook closed that door with the true potential of a global social network. And so often, if you're very product-centric, you might think your category is bound by the features that you offer. However, there are other visionary people that says the category is only bound by how many people have the problem. And often, it's those people that kind of look at the global meta view of how many people in the world have this problem. And if I can get to them, how many people will accept my answer for the problem? And that's where often you see these companies come in and basically eat the meal that is set in front of them from the companies that came in first and maybe didn't see the big picture. You know, and it's the fundamental nature, isn't it, of the technology industry that 
we're investing and developing company businesses that are inherently highly, highly scalable. And the category leader, when they reach dominance, consume a vast majority of the value in the marketplace. But you only get to be the category leader by, I think, executing far, far better than everybody else in the market. And, that, and that's really where you know, this kind of thought process of start up, grow up, scale up, and design, develop, dominate when it comes to category is so important because you've got to be thinking about how you're actually going to go about executing the, the strategies at each stage. Because if you don't become dominant in the space, you don't get to own the category. And I think Dave will talk to it far better, but it, it is a, a winner-take-all kind of thought process, isn't it? Yes, it absolutely is. In fact, uh, you know, uh, we, we did the research and looked at every category King formed from venture-backed companies in the U.S. since 2000. And the research didn't lie. It absolutely verified that 76% of the total market cap of any given category went to the category King. One King, one company took it off. There is no second place to Facebook, no second place. Even if you often mention Lyft in the same breath as Uber, they are much, much smaller in size and value, regardless of who we're even rooting for, right? And so that winner-take-all mentality exists, and you have to have it. If it, you know, I, Again, I think about sitting down with Stephen and his team, and we talk about this this glean in the eye that's required to get through all of those stages, start up, grow up, scale up. And every stage, you almost have to have, again, you wake up in the morning, you have this almost just violent paranoia <laughs> that somebody is going to come in, take everything that you've built and capitalize on that and basically fly right by you. And it takes this sort of determination to believe that the journey is never over. If you're Amazon, the journey is never over. Right? They're going to continue to dominate and grow and solve new problems based off the flywheel that they, they generate with their existing success. And these are the type of companies that shape the way the world works. And often, and I remember back in the CRM days in the 1996, I'm kind of dating myself, but I remember at one point in time, there was a big trade show called DCI, and it's not really relevant. But if you were there at the time, there were probably 150 companies solving Salesforce automation problems, call center problems, help desk problems, IT problems, you name it, product configurators. And it was pre-CRM. There was no CRM category at the time. There were all these individual kind of siloed problems. And I bet you there was probably half a dozen companies or more that were public that hit some magic number, $80 million in revenue. And I think the majority of them, including the company I worked for, Vantive, declared victory. Said, well, you know, we're public. We hit $100 million. Phew, yeah, that was fun. Now let's go harvest the value of this category. And looking back, right, that was just when the starting gun went off. <laughs> and, and all those companies took their foot off the pedal. And you see it happen all the time. And all of a sudden, this company called Siebel Systems came in and decided that the sum of the parts were worth more than any individual silo and connected common database between Salesforce Automation Call Center, Help Desk, and all of what we know CRM to be today and said, I think this is a meta category called CRM. And the extinction event happened pretty quickly after that. Those companies all celebrating their victory at that DCI show were all pretty much gone within years. And it's amazing what happens when you don't keep your eye not on the horizon, but on the horizon line, past the horizon line. You have to be heads up all the time thinking about how to expand that category potential 
almost religiously. If, if not, you will most likely see somebody in your rearview mirror. And then next time you see them, you'll be in their rearview mirror. You mentioned earlier, Amazon is a great example, obviously, of the constant redefinition of the category, what it actually means to sell stuff online, basically. That's a very large one I just took here. But, but the other example you mentioned is Google that you said closed the door. But don't you think that even this analogy of closing the door is still a narrative because we still don't know? Yes, absolutely. And Stephen can talk to why there's 10-year funds in the VC industry for this reason. And we call these things category curves. And every curve is the proxy for the problem. And the second you think you've ridden the curve and you're now harvesting the value of the category, just by the very creation of that curve, there's going to be another one coming up, right? Almost is that old adage that today's solution creates tomorrow's problems. And that new problem is a category. One of the examples we'd like to give is uh, if you look back at the history of mobile, in particular, uh, your phone, right? And you know, there was a time in the day, and I, most of us probably on this on this show will remember when the phone was a thing that was attached <laughs> to your wall, and there was a dial on it, and every dial was associated with a number. And I still have one of those back on my farmhouse in Iowa, and uh, that was a phone. And then pretty soon that phone disconnected from the wall. You walked around with it in your house, and then eventually you had one in your car, and it came in a big container that zipped up and, and plugged into your car. Sometimes it was hardwired in. And that again, the, the problem keeps shifting, right? And along with these new categories. And then pretty soon the phone left your car and, and it eventually fit in your back pocket. And you know, if you go back and watch an old episode of, or the old movie Wall Street, you can watch Gordon Gecko walking yeah. on that big brick <laughs> Motorola, right? And uh, you know, and it changed the way the world worked because all of a sudden now the phone is with you. And that that answer to that problem of how do you have a mobile phone opened up categories, right? And then that opened up a whole world of PDAs and pagers and uh, Palm Pilots and Blackberries and eventually smartphones and who knows what's coming next. And if you looked at some of the companies that thought they could never be unseated from their category king position, think of Nokia. There was a time in the day that none of us would have ever imagined that yeah, Nokia would be the most important company in the world because we all had one of their products in our back pocket. And I kind of wish I still had one. I love that phone. But, uh, <laughs> uh, but that company rode its curve. And as that curve started to come down and pass the apex and start to slide down, a new curve came up. And if you don't jump curves, as we like to say in the, in the category design world, you're bound to miss the next wave. And then there's companies, as you mentioned, like Amazon, who you almost think they're creating their own waves, right? They not only create the curve, they jump the curve, they dominate it. And then they're the first in on the next curve to come up. And that we call the flywheel. And that's something important because the game is never over as long as you want to keep playing. It's a really uh, different perspective than I think some people have about end game. There really isn't an end game. Yeah, and I think it is a really important point, the speed of, the speed of execution. I mean, there are, there are many reasons for that. But, you know, ultimately, if you don't execute fast enough, and more importantly, get enough scale within that five to seven year period, you don't have the resources available to reinvent. And so you largely become irrelevant and redundant. So, you know, with scale comes incredible value and synergies. With scale comes the ability to actually reinvent and jump on to the next curve. If you have that never-ending category creation and dominance marketplace. And, you know, one of the reasons, Paul, we're so, we obsess about this so much is we really don't feel that there is enough of this category design, develop, dominate thinking within the European tech ecosystem. You're right, yeah. You know, I just feel we're, we're, we're failing to live up to potential. We don't think big enough. 
we settled too early and we haven't been building these kind of businesses at, uh, on a repeated basis. And that's why it's so important, I think, to get these kind of thinking and insights into, into the ecosystem. Dave, any pearl of wisdom do you want to, what would you say to a European entrepreneur that needs to be category defining? I think in particular for the audience to take away that there is no boundary to creating your own category. There may have been in the past, it was almost back to that conversation around first mover advantage. It may have been very difficult to create a global business if you weren't in a particular, you know, in the Silicon Valley or our place that had an ecosystem that sort of was pre-built to help companies rise from an idea to a global king. Those days are over. You can create a company, you can kickstart a company from anywhere in the world. I grew up in a little town in in Iowa, and you could start a company there just as quickly as you could start one in London or in Paris or in, throughout the Southeast Asia. It doesn't matter. If you have an idea and you have a problem and you have a category, basically the only boundaries you have are based on how many people have the problem. And, and I hate to sound harsh, but it, I think it's a bit of an excuse to think that just because you're not in a tech center, you are not qualified or capable of building a category king. Those days are over, and I think we'll see that over the next five, 10 years. We'll start to hear about companies coming up and creating these category kings from very unlikely places. And, and Stephen and I have talked until <laughs> the sun went down around, you know, what is the mindset you need to have in the, call it the UK tech sector, to really believe that, you know, the next Google could come out of the UK. It really is just a belief. If you believe it, you can make it happen. The constraints of the past don't exist today. So if you got that burning, mindset that you can go off and you want to solve a problem that's not been solved yet or solve a problem that people don't know they have yet, then uh, go for it. All the resources are at your disposal. And again, if the problem's big enough, you know, the people will come to you to help you build your company and the product ideas will fly off the shelves. It's just a different mentality. And that I think is a, a point I'd like to close with. Well, I thank you for actually having uh, reduced your entire evening with Stephen with that, because for our audience, it's, per it's perfect. Though, I'm sure a lot of those uh, in the audience, myself included, would have loved to be there, fly on the wall to listen to you actually come to that conclusion. <laughs> yeah, you know, I think if you don't define the category for the problem you're solving, the chances are somebody else will. But perhaps worse is you define the category, you put it out there, and you don't execute it. This is a winner-take-all marketplace. And I think the resources are there. The understanding is there. The talent is there. Um, it is about the, the ambition, the belief, and the, and the resilience. And to those points, the paranoia to say, actually, we can execute and build and dominate this marketplace. And if we don't, somebody else will. Well, I'm hearing somebody is actually linking on somebody's door here. <laughs> that's, well, that's kind of a that's a nice sound effect. I wonder if. Uh... <laughs> so, to finish this episode, Dave, if uh, people want to find more about you, you mentioned the book as well. Yeah, if you want to learn more about category design, look up "Play Bigger." That's the name of the book. I think you can get it on Amazon, or if you Google it, you can find it in your area of the world. And then, if you want to get a hold of anybody who works at Play Bigger Advisors, you can just shoot me a note at Dave at Play Bigger or uh, go hit our website. 
hopefully, uh, if you give, grab the book, it's a, it's a fun read. And if it's not fun, let me know. Uh, we, we tried. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> if it is fun and it maybe gives you a different thought about, you know, how the world should work and your role in that, that would be a great result. Well, I'm sure you've defined a category of category defining fun books. On that, Dave, uh, thank you so much. Bye bye, guys. Thank you. Bye bye. Thank you. Thank you.